Because my belief is, look, I mean, time is an important element in people's lives. But our way of keeping time is basically based on light. I mean, light is the primordial element in my view, because we count 24 hours and we have days and we have nights. And so, yes, we have figured out and we said, okay, we're going to set an artificial 24-hour day, but we are still largely dealing with the rotation of the earth around the sun and how the light changes, right? Now, people disagree with me on that, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it goes back to the the natural light in the Milky Way. And now you're working with this manufactured light, as you say, which is either reminiscent of that, but also it's... Correct, yeah. It sets its own time. I mean, the time scale there in the universe is so much longer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But still, it's there, you know. (laughs) Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran... And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art that they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Sunil Garg. Sunil is a contemporary light artist who paints and sculpts natural and computer-programmed light. Sunil's artwork is an amalgamation of his scientific experiences his involvement with environmental issues, and his musical and performance experiences. We discuss the disruptive nature of art and how the boundlessness of art can encourage a dialogue between the artist and the audience. Well, welcome to the show, Sunil. We are happy to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. I think it sounds like a very exciting and interesting podcast. So you and I talked a week or so ago uh, in a little pre-discussion and... uh, and one of the things you said that I found really kind of interesting, and I'd like to actually uh, talk a little more about it. Uh, so you, your art is focused on light. You're a, a light painter, light sculptor. And you mentioned the theme of light, how it had kind of followed you through your life a little bit, through uh, your early days as a boy, um, where there was no artificial light, to working in the field of science and chemistry, looking at light, and now working with light and maybe talking a little about those stories. I just found that kind of interesting <laughs> and an interesting thread that connects all of this. Well, it's kind of uh, interesting to talk about it only because, you know, I'm not that old. I mean, I was, I was born on a farm outside of Delhi and, you know, we were not by any means quote, quote, poor people or lived in huts and things. We had a brick house and all that. It was a large compound, but there just wasn't any electricity. You know, New Delhi was 28 miles away, and it was a modern city even then. I mean, the the British had built it. Uh, It had roads, cars, electricity 24 hours a day, but 25, 26 miles outside of Delhi, there was nothing. I mean, there were not even any roads, you know. So the first uh, roughly seven years of my life, I lived in this house with my family, extended family, and no electricity. As I like to say, no manufactured light. But there was, of course, a lot of very natural light. And we spent a huge amount of time looking at uh, trees and shadows. And, and at night, because there was no light pollution, uh, the sky was literally, you know, within your grasp. And, uh, you know, I, I, I say to people, I said, I, it's only after I came to the U.S. and heard uh, Jimi Hendrix say, you know, excuse me while I touch the sky, uh, that I realized that's what was happening to me, you know, because... Uh, and those images and 
as I'm particularly as I'm getting older, I think, have uh, stayed with me. But coincidentally, when I went to work for my PhD uh, in polymer characterization at Stevens, one of the methods of characterization that I worked on as a master's student was in using small angle scattering of uh, light, you know, at a fixed laser wavelength to study amorphous structures. And then later on working with x-rays, so in an extended way in electromagnetic magnetic radiation. And I just got very fascinated by the idea that you could see things that you couldn't otherwise see. <laughs> you know? That kind of stayed with me for a long time. And I think when I sort of, when I started doing art full time, you know, my, you know, you know, my career as a scientist and a lawyer and all that, I didn't start out with light, working with light initially. And I was making these very amorphous large scale structures from wire mesh and uh, common materials. And uh, one of the artistic uh, directors at the National Academy in New York was looking at them one day and said, well, what happens if we put light on them? And so we started, started out with quote unquote white light uh, and then started putting colored lights on them. And it was just like a whole revelation. It's almost like it tickled something at the back of my head that was dormant mm. and that just got it started. And that's what I do now is just play with shadows and, you know. It's like someone turned on a light switch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, that's interesting about it. I grew up here in the city, so uh, probably did not see a real sky until many years later, maybe in, in almost adulthood, or, you know, we took a couple of trips, I guess, out to the country, but to ever really get to a place that was that dark was right. uh, always uh, challenging and mystery. And, you know, you looked up <laughs> and didn't really, uh, couldn't believe it. I mean, it I have vivid, there, so. vivid memories now. And I have a piece that I did around that of actually seeing the Milky Way with all the colors with my naked eyes. Uh, we used to sleep outdoors because in the summertime it was too hot and, you know, we would have beds set up uh, in either on the roof, which was a flat roof of the house or in the courtyard. And at night, uh, as your light eyes got even more adjusted to the darkness, it was just amazing. <laughs> so we just covered your whole life right there. Now, now so, <laughs> so you uh, spent time as a, a scientists and a very technical field and then uh, doing uh, legal work and more kind of business oriented work. And then the art and you, and then when I read your bio, you also mentioned a lot of art and creativity, music and other things right. earlier in your life. In that space between those two, uh, when you're pursuing your career, when you maybe moved out of even a more technical career, did you put kind of the art and creative pursuits on the side or were you doing them as a sideline? Did you have outlets or were you very career focused? I mean, at times I was uh, so busy that there was no time to do anything else. But for balance purposes, I was always doing some form of creative artistic, quote unquote, artistic activity. I mean, I tend to think of uh, cooking or culinary stuff also as a creative activity, particularly if you are experimental with it. I tend to think of, I mean, I took, uh, you know, I live in Summit and we have the New Jersey Center for the Visual Art. And I have uh, ceramics and I could never throw a pot on a wheel. I just couldn't. It was not something I tried, but I could make, uh, you know, freehand pottery um, using porcelain and 
old Japanese style techniques. And I still have plates and bowls and cups that go back to the 80s. And then I did a whole series of uh, uh, sculptures using recycled corrugated paper. And you go to the dry cleaners and they give you all your suits back with uh, all that you know, paper stuffed inside the sleeves. And, and I, I would look at that and I said, this is like, why are we throwing this away? So I have a bunch of sculptures. One of my favorite ones of my own is a, a piece that is a replica of the Mona Lisa, but it only focuses on the hands because I love doing hands and I have a, I mean, recently I posted a hand on Instagram and my God, I got like 1500 <laughs> views on it. I love that piece actually. I did it about seven years yes. ago. So no, I always kept doing it. I didn't play much music after uh, I started working because I didn't have a group of people to play with and I didn't want to play solitary. When I was in New York, I was playing uh, with many different people, with groups. And as you know, even professional, professionally, I was playing. So it was always there, you know, it was always there. And I think maybe, you, you know, we'll go further down into it. But the point is that being a quote unquote artist imparts, you know, certain skills that are sort of a little bit distinct from being a scientist or even a business person. But the meld of those two, I tend to think is quite important. And I think it was very important in my career, uh, it has been so far. There's a study I was listening to recently uh, about kind of like scientists, and so many of them have kind of extreme uh, hobbies, sports hobbies, especially. Right. And they were saying it, it's, uh, it's, it's a way for them to kind of engage a different part of their brain and kind of help them with uh, kind of their scientific career as well. So when you were engaging with your art uh, uh, in your corporate life, was that more of just a balance because you had music and art uh, always part of your life? Or did you find that uh, it also kind of engaged different part of your, or helped you in your professional career or contributed in some way? Well, I think it did help uh, in, in my professional career. As, a, as an artist, you, in my view, you tend to think of things from a different reference point than scientists or engineers do. I mean, I think that artists are really probably the only creative people who create a, a unique piece right? I mean, everything you make is, is completely unique. Nobody ever has done it before and nobody will ever do it again. And so I think what that does, it, it sort of creates a sense of innovation that, uh, not that you can't do it with other disciplines, but I certainly found that, you know, I would look at a problem. Uh, I, I, I like to tell the story without taking any names. When I went to work for my first job after my PhD, they gave me this problem, which they never told me was a very intractable problem. It, uh, uh, I pretty much solved it in about three months. And it turned out that they had been working on it for about three years. And my boss, got, quote unquote, came to me and he says, well, so you solved it. I said, yeah, well, what did you do? I said, I don't know. I mean, I was, you know, <laughs> looking at this stuff and the, and, and sometimes I go back to think about, this was in 1979. And, uh, and I, I sometimes sit and think about that incident because it made my career at the company. You know, it was, apparently it was a very major, it was a very major problem that, and the fact that they didn't tell me it was a major problem probably helped <laughs> for me to solve it because there were no barrier. And, and I think the other thing is that, I think that if you can't be an artist and fake it. 
you know i mean i think i think that authenticity is very important in art and i think most people who are viewing art can figure out when an artist is being inauthentic and as a result i think what it is is that and that kind of helps has helped me in my professional career because if something doesn't sound right if something doesn't sit with you then you don't you either question it or don't do it or bring it up to management and say hey i've thought about this but you know these are the ramifications but and i think that's a fairly unique skill artists have you know science by itself and even even law are basically incremental in their development right you you rely on something that has happened before you know all this history of science or somebody has done it before you and you're growing on that and the same thing in law you have the idea of precedents and you know uh, things that have gone before now i think artists tend to be disruptive i mean yeah there is history of art there are traditions of art and certainly with more structured education like mfas and things like that people are learning uh, there are schools of art which i don't think is a, that good at development but the essence of an artist uh, to be an artist whether you are actually painting or doing anything else or sculpture or cooking is to be disruptive and that also then creates uh, an avenue to be sort of unique in terms of what you do i told you i could ramble on so <laughs> i love it and i was i was thinking because i was thinking about that i i mean it cuz so much art is also though is also sometimes yeah. derivative of something that's come before and i think especially today i i feel like you see more and more of that um and i'm not sure that's well, is that or art that, or is that craft right. i mean that's the question right i mean craft is craft is what people want and art is what people need in my view anyway <laughs> <laughs> But you're right. So yes, the truly disruptive art is is so new. It's almost just, it can even disrupt the actual art world of what they're expecting, right? They, you know, it's it gets a reaction sometimes even negatively yeah. to it and, and not accepted uh, because it's never been done. Oh well, yeah, before. I mean, taping you the banana to the wall, can't right? Do I mean. that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, people think it's like a gimmick, but the point is, you think about it, and it, it is very disruptive. Yes, the story uh, that my partner told me years ago of going with a, I think it was a school, maybe high school trip to a uh, the Museum of Modern Art, and there was something similar to that. And the art teacher was taking me through, and one of the students is like, "Like, I could have done that," and he. Well, so why didn't you? <laughs> well, the most difficult thing in life, in my view, is uh, lots of people have ideas. The question is, what is the barrier to beginning? I mean, it's the same thing for entrepreneurs, quote unquote, in the technical field. Is how do you know when to begin? Yeah. Well, and that, so that's a good follow-up too, because I, I think there is something about that, and we've that's a theme we've heard in a couple different places about. You know, there's the idea that an artist has. And uh, and it's been touched on a couple different times. There's that uh, imagination that comes up with an idea, creativity, whatever. And then it's actually the production of something. You could just have the idea, but if you can't actually <laughs> produce it, right? And that's same with the entrepreneur. 
then it really hasn't happened. And, and that's almost the, the, the true artist, right? Is you, you need to kind of make it from here to something that people actually can yeah. react to. I mean, because, you know, art, no matter which way you look at it, uh, predominantly involves, you know, some physical structure, some construction, some fabrication. And, you know, it's not like uh, in science today, you know, you're basically doing things untouched by human hand. But you can't do art that way. Uh, I mean, you can if you're doing fully digital, but even there, uh, you know, there is something uh, that you have to touch. <laughs> uh, I mean, the concept of working with your hands, whether you're playing the piano or playing the sitar or cooking, uh, I think is very important for, for us humans. I think if we lose that ability, then I think we, we, we become different than what we are. Uh, I won't say we become poorer or something, but I just think we become different than what we are. And I think artists are the last uh, uh, refuge, if you would, you know, because otherwise you could do everything. I mean, right now people are working from home. They don't even have a lot of direct human contact, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yes. You know, you're doing a lot of large sculpture pieces. And one of the other piece, things we talked about, um, so it's it kind of is a very physical presence. It's It's not, digital, um, though there's some, maybe some digital light programming, those kind of things. Uh, one of the other things you talked about was uh, the kind of boundless element to it, which is not having kind of uh, finite boundaries. And, and that's kind of a physical space touching kind of thing too, in a way, because it takes up more space or it, it can you talk a little bit about that and why you... Yeah, you, so the uh, idea of boundlessness, right? I mean, I mean, I try to make my work uh, without edges if I can help it. I mean, I, uh, if I'm doing outdoors, that is easy to do because obviously, you know, you're, you're, you have the whole universe, if you would, <laughs> to be grand about it around you. But if you're working inside a gallery, I, have, I, I usually try to uh, inculcate, I don't say insist so much, but try to negotiate the idea that uh, there are two things I will do. <laughs> I don't like to think, put things in negative ways. So I won't say that there are two things I won't do, but I, I like to say there are two things I will do. If you ask me to write an artist statement, I'll give you a blank piece of paper. Because my view is that that is a dialogue the artist has to have with the audience. I mean, I know it's very different than what other people do in art, but my view is it's like kind of going on a date, you know? If you only talk about yourself, are you going to have a successful date with somebody? So, so the point is, uh, you know, you give the audience an opportunity to react to what you have done. And, and, and of course, for that, the artist has to be present. And so, so that's one aspect of uh, the boundlessness in my view, because everybody who looks at art uh, that I make has their own perspective on it, you know? Because as somebody said, and I, you know, I don't know if I said this to you the other day, and this is my phrase that I've been repeating a lot to a lot of people. Uh, look, ignorance is boundless, uh, right? But uh, knowledge has boundaries, right? So I want people to come into my show ignorant of what they are going to look at uh, in the sense of to experience it and make their own judgment about, you know, what's going on. And then if they want to discuss with me or offer and it's better that I listen to what people are saying to me than my telling them, you know, what it is. 
So that's one aspect of it. Mm. The other aspect, of course, is the structural or physical boundlessness where the light, you know, simply fills the space. Uh, and if I have four or five pieces, like I had five installations in this New Jersey City University gallery, about 1,500 square foot gallery, you know, the curator kept saying, well, maybe we should some, put some partitions. And uh, I said, no, I mean, because I can create colors, but when all of these five pieces colors mix, you get colors that you can't even imagine you're going to get. Particularly the, the artist statement piece that's interesting was uh, came up in another one of our interviews of, there was a whole, the whole concept of the, you know, the, the placard being on the wall telling you what to think of the piece. So, you know, people come in, they see the art, they walk over, they read the, they spend more time reading right. the placard <laughs> thinking what they're supposed to think than actually taking in the I art. I had piece, a curator right? who insisted. So I gave her a artist statement in Braille. <laughs> she had no idea what to do with it. So I said, go learn a language. Here it is. It's in Braille. I, I met your requirements. You don't want to show the work, don't show it. <laughs> I saw some of uh, your videos at your installations and uh, light itself, when I was looking at it, it is non-physical. It's its, it's own boundless nature. The room was bathed in your installation's light. The participants were kind of colored in the light itself. Like, how are you understanding when your when your project is, let's say, finished? Like, because it's it will be, as you said, in interaction with the user, the the viewer, in interaction with the space. Like, how are you understanding? Like, when well, you're, one of the aspects of of work that I try to do is that I want the work to be fresh all the time, in the sense that. If I'm using, let's say, four, three to four elements of light that are programmed individually, I program them on, on different time cycles. So when you start, the piece will start at the same place. And if I have like one of those wire hanging pieces which have, which have rotational motion as well, or some other kind of motion, you have another element of uncertainty. And you know, I encourage people to walk, I encourage people to touch the pieces. What I would like, to happen is the piece will not repeat itself. I mean, you can, you can do the simple probabilistic, you can do the, the combinatorial analysis, not that complex to do, of course. You have four elements, each programmed, uh, you know, maybe on a five second cycle longer than the one before. Once you start it, it just diverges, right? So uh, I've had reactions from people. They say, well, we are standing here, we get mesmerized because we are trying to figure out whether what we saw 10, 10 seconds ago will come back, and it never does. So the idea actually is to not have a piece that is finished. You know, it, it is always new, number one, because light is always new. I mean, what you see now is not going to ever come back, right? The second part of that is that I try to program the intensities of the light. I want to, you know, uh, control it to a point where you can look at it directly without it saturating your optic nerve and then distorting what you see in the future. Because just think about it. I mean, when do you see color changing in front of your eye? You see it in videos when you watch television, but it's very fleeting. What, what I want to be able to do is for, peop, 
for me personally, of course, because to be authentic, it has to be coming from within me. I want to be able to see the color changing. I want to go from reds to greens to blues and whatever other combinations it produces without it just saturating me so that everything becomes incoherent after a period of time. So those are two other aspects of, uh, two aspects of when I construct a, an installation that I try to do. Because my belief is, look, I mean, time is an important element in people's lives, but our way of keeping time is basically based on light. I mean, light is the primordial element in my view, because we count 24 hours and we have days and we have nights. And so, yes, we have figured out, we said, okay, we're gonna set an artificial 24 hour day, but we are still largely dealing with the rotation of the earth around the sun and how the light changes, right? Now, people disagree with me on that, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this goes back to the the natural light in the Milky Way. And now you're working with this manufactured light, as you say, which is either reminiscent of that, but also it's- Correct, yeah. It sets its own time. I mean, the time scale there in the universe is so much longer. Uh, but still, it's there, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like the idea of uh, everything changing, as you say. I mean, and it almost makes people right. slow down a little bit, too, to, to, to recognize that. So the theme here around uh, our show is uh, artists engineering. You actually touched on it in a couple of different ways. You've been great. I mean, you mentioned even cooking. So, you know, we're... We, we, uh, pretty loose with the idea of what, what an engineer and what an artist is in, in some ways. It's about being creative and, and imagination and engineer might be more problem solving or a more structured technical world. You know, you spent time um, in pretty technical fields. You even mentioned uh, mm-hmm. the legal field, which technical field in a way. This, this same kind of commonality of, of uh, you know, where people either lean one way very strongly the other or it came into conflict or you know, or complementary well i mean in my experience the uh, the people who are most satisfied with what they do in the scientific fields or even most successful uh, to themselves because i think success in most people who are successful have a sense of what success is to themselves and it doesn't necessarily have to do with money or fame or any of those kinds of things I mean, I think tend to approach, uh, in my experience, tend to approach issues that they're facing in pretty much the same way as, as an artist would, uh, in the sense that, you know, as an artist, you, you have a concept, right? And you're trying to figure out how to best put that concept out for everybody to see. And that's really not terribly different for scientists, right? I mean, uh, when Einstein was looking at the at the universe trying to figure out what was what. I mean, you know, nobody had thought what he was thinking. And, and he, I suppose, came up with this realization that your experience is bound by the situation you're in, which is sort of what theory of relativity is, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, what you're looking at depends on what you might wa- be wanting to see. And, and, and I think that that's pretty much the same if you're, if you're successful as a lawyer, if you're successful as a, it's just that some of the rules are different, you know. It doesn't matter because if you don't bend the rules, 
you don't develop new law. I mean, if 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 uh, if uh, uh, John Marshall hadn't uh, said, well, in Marbury versus Madison, which is, as you may know, is you know a very quote unquote important case in American jurisprudence, that one line that uh, Marshall has, which basically says, well, of course, the you know whether what Congress does is consistent with the Constitution or not is really a judicial function. I mean, believe it or not, that's the first time that was said, and that's what has made the 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 interpretation of const, of uh, constitutionality of, judi- of congressional decisions uh, important in American jurisprudence. But he just said it. I mean, how how uh, you know? Same thing in you know, sort of crafting the the basis on which Roe versus Wade is based. You know, to extend the idea of privacy rights. Uh, you have to think, uh, you know, very creatively. And uh, so is it really that different? I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. I wonder if we need to rename the show Artist, Engineer, and Lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Janiel. This has been a wide-ranging and fun conversation. I feel like we could have spent a half an hour on any one of these topics with you. Science, art, law, culinary arts, and we didn't even get into your jazz musicianship. So I look forward to visiting you at your studio in Monaco Contemporary in Jersey City in sometime in 2021. And look forward to what art you have uh, coming up next. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it too. I really did. <laughs> so. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.